0: Y'all are just trying to prove me right. I think I was quoted in the paper this week as saying we're a very welcoming church. That's sweet of you to to make me not look like I'm a liar. Colossians chapter three, verses twelve through seventeen, is where we are in God's Word as we continue on in our study of this book. Picking up in verse twelve, and we'll read through verse seventeen hear God's word, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Oh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we have so many other things on our minds. I know I do. But Lord, your your word is precious. It is an amazing thing that the God of the universe, the one who has created us, the one who knit us in our mother's wombs, has spoken and has made himself known. has revealed his love and his redemption to us. And so, gracious God, I pray that you would incline our ears, our spiritual ears to hear what you have to say. God, I pray that you give me humility. Lord, I pray that you unite us. As we see so much of the emphasis of this passage, unite us together as a people from every tribe and every race and every culture, that we would grow together in reconciliation and restoration and love for one another. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Last week, we looked at the first couple, uh, or we looked at verses 5 through 11, where it talked about putting to death or taking off something, in which it says, your old self, the self that was put to death, the old man that had power over you. He has been put to death, but the presence of the simple way of life in which you used to live is still with you. The power is not there. You don't have to live under it, but the presence of that sin is still there. And and the the command and the call of verses 5 through 11 of Colossians 3 is to put those things away, put them to death, take them off. Now, it's a good idea when you take your clothes off to put something else on, correct? Particularly if you're going to go out in public. There's a parable, actually, Jesus talks about how important it is and how inherent it is for the spiritual life that we are not simply a people who are saying, don't do this and don't touch that and keep away from this activity, but that we have to fill our lives with something better. There's a parable that Jesus tells about a man who had a demon, and he said in that parable, he talks about how, yes, we could drive away the demon, but if something better does not fill his heart, seven more demons will fill him. Something much worse will fill his life. And this is the heart and nature of repentance. Repentance is part of what you have to do, both when you first walk with Jesus and every single day of your life, turning from sin and turning towards something. And in the same way, when you take off, you must put on. This is what we're talking about these last couple of weeks, of what it looks like to repent of sins, but not simply keeping away from certain activities, but also now putting on better activities, a better life. And what you put on matters. How you, what you, how you exhibit your life outwardly, it matters. Your behaviors and what it reveals about your heart. And Paul is saying in verses 12 through 17 that there are various characteristics and character qualities and activities of the Christian that fit us. Ever been dress shopping? Men, you've ever been forced to go dress shopping? I never had to. I think maybe Once. But if you ever see, at least this is how I imagine it going, is that a girl walks out with a dress and her friends all go, oh, that totally, that dress totally fits you. That's totally you. Well, that's what Paul is saying here today, that compassion and kindness and patience. Christian, this is totally you. It totally fits you. Put on these clothes. So the next three, we're actually going to break this particular passage down and deal with it over the next three weeks instead of dealing with all the subjects that are brought up here because they're all over the place. But it essentially, in, these, in this passage in 12 through 17, Paul is saying we need to put on three things. First, put on love. Second, be put on peace. And then third, put on the word of God, or the word of Christ, he calls it. So this morning, we're going to look at the first of those. We're going to co- look at what it looks like to put on love. I'm going to begin by look, taking kind of two points and looking at the nature of love that we are to put on. What's, what's it like and what's it supposed to look like in our lives? And then we'll spend the last half of our time together looking at what it looks like, how it looks to, to put the to practice this love, to practice putting on the love that Paul calls us to put on into our lives and display as Christians. All right, so we begin with the nature of love. It's first this. It's a binding nature. It's a binding nature to love. Verse 14 says this, and above all these, after all these characteristics I've mentioned, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, Paul uses this, says that this activity of love in the Christian life binds us together and harmonizes even all these characteristics that have been mentioned in the people of God. In order, in order to understand this, we must understand the type of love that Paul is talking about here. There's actually four different words in the New Testament and the Greek language that are used for different types of love. There's storge love, kind of like stork, and it, means, it refers to familial love the kind of natural affection that a mother has for her child. Then there's phileo love. This is the love of friendship and the love of duty, living out kindness and loyalty and commitment to the people around you, in particular your family and your friends. Then there's eros love. Eros can be both negative and positive. This is romantic or sensual love. This is an appreciation for the beauty of someone, both their physical beauty, but also, in the positive sense, their spiritual beauty and personal beauty. But then there is a fourth definition of love. The type of, type of love, if you spent much time in church, you have heard this word. But this other word in Greek is what's called agape love. Agape love. Now, this love is not pitted against these other three types of love. But in fact, it actually improves and qualifies, makes better all those other loves. The storge love, the eros love, and the phileo love. This is an issue of depth of our love. And there's four different phrases or words to kind of help you understand simply what agape love is. First, it's unconditional. It comes with no conditions. When you communicate and express agape love to another brother and sister in Christ or to somebody in your family, you are not expecting anything back or any payment in return for the love in which you have expressed to them. So it's unconditional. Second, it is self-giving. It's self-giving love. You're pouring yourself out to this person and for this person. The motivation is not to get something from them or to earn something, but it's simply to give yourself away. The third term is connected to that, and that's self-emptying. So it's unconditional, self-giving, and self-emptying. This is a love that does not hold back. It does not say, I'm going to give you a little bit of, this of my life, and I'm going to hold this over here, and I'm going to hold it hidden from you and away from you. No, I'm going to pour out my love upon you. It is self-emptying. This is the problem with a particular couple in, the, in Acts who, say, who went and sold all their land, and then they claimed to have given all of their money to the church when they only gave a percentage of that money. They, didn't, they held back in their love and appreciation in giving back to the Lord. The fourth term in regarding in helping us understand agape love is simply this it is soul derived. From the soul. The Greeks understood that agape love comes from the core of our being and it becomes an essence of our character and who we are agape love. Unconditional, self-emptying, self-giving. And the only way you can have agape love is it has to come from God. And we'll look at this more later. But if you remember, it is this agape love is what is called, it is one of the fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit of God, who we don't have this before the Spirit enters our life, but He comes and He enters and invades the very essence of who we are at the core of our being, and then begins to exhibit love out of our life through us. Now it's this kind of love, this agape love, that binds us together. We saw last week that verse 11 ended with this idea that Christ is in all and through all of God's people. It binds people who should not necessarily be bound together, it binds them together. Not only that, but this agape love, all those characteristics that are mentioned in verses 12 through 13, agape love is the umbrella that encompasses all these other terms, compassion, kindness, patience, forgiving one another, they all flow out of this type of love, this agape love. And that is the emphasis that is going on here in Colossians 3, is that we are to put on agape love, the type of love is God's people that binds us together with people who we should not be bound together with. People of different generations when you're not supposed to hang out with those who are older than you. And people of different races when we're supposed to be in animosity against one another. But the church, historically, the gospel binds us through Jesus Christ. The actual word here in the Greek for binding is, it refers to this, the same word for the sinews in your body. It holds everything together. That is what is going on in Colossians 3. This is the type of love and this is the, this is the bonding nature that it has. You can see a church, and a family, and a people, that there is love exhibited there when there is unity together, when they're forgiving one another, when they're showing compassion and kindness to one another. But love is um, a word that we use fairly frequently and rather um, without any sacredness to it. It is a word that often as we think about it, though even in this terms in regards to church, It it needs to be grounded. It tends to have this airy, flighty sort of feel to us. But love is not generic, and Paul won't let it remain generic in this passage. It is very earthy. It is not just romantic, but it is rugged. Love plays itself out as we see it does in this passage. And the very famous passage on love in 1 Corinthians 13. Look at this. In 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 8. Here's it shows us what love does. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. But rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love is very earthy. This type of love, it is an action that takes place in your heart. In I mean, your becomes a, a something that's going on in your heart and is played out in your life. And here's a little play on words for you: the character qualities of this of this love, this agape love. It is what binds us, but it also it bounds. It binds us together, but this type of love bounds outward. If you know the character Tigger in the Winnie the Pooh accounts and stories, Tigger's great problem is that he bounds on people with his love. His affection, it it cannot be contained, his energy. And that's the same way with the Christian, that when your life is rooted with an agape type of love, it bounds out in all sorts of ways. And here are the ways that Paul describes it, and let's look at those this, this morning. The bounding nature of love as Paul describes it in verses 12 through 13. He's going to give it to us in two couplets and then one triplet. Whereas where the words connect to one another, where compassion leads to kindness, humility leads to, to, to meekness, and so on and so forth. And the first of these uh, bounding nature of love is that compassionate hearts lead to kindness in our lives. Compassion, heart, compassionate hearts and kindness go together. One could say that compassion is the inward disposition of the heart that leads to a life of kindness for the Christian. And what we see is a kind person is someone who is compassionate towards others. A person whose heart is easily engaged in empathy and sympathy to those in need. And a kind person, let's be very clear here, a kind person is not a nice person necessarily. Now you want to be nice, but a nice means, nice means agreeable. nice i said this before, but nice is what your great aunt wants you to be. God doesn't want you to necessarily just be nice. There are times when I have to discipline my children and they don't think I'm being very agreeable. But I am being kind. Here's what kind is. Kind is to treat someone in view of what you long for them to be, their glorious selves in the future. It's like having a vision for their lives. And so compassion, compassion in some ways, sees us in our present state and sees us in comparison to what God designed us and made us to be. and looks back that we are broken compared to the way God had designed us to be, Adam and Eve in the garden, living in intimacy with him in a beautiful and perfect place. Compassion sees and says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And kindness says, well, I'm going to take that, and I'm going to say, I can see the way it ought to be in the future. I'm going to, and I'm going to interact with these folks in, the, in terms of what I long for them to be and when God comes back. That is kindness. And these two are connected to one another, a longing A longing to embrace and engage with the needs of other people. And kindness is living out that longing into action in their lives. So that's one of them. Love bounding out into compassion and then into kindness. The second is this. Humility that bounds to meekness. Humility that brings us to meekness. Again, these go well together. Once again, we could say that humility is the inward state of the heart. And meekness is the outward expression of the heart. In order to understand, meekness is not a word that we use very often in our day and age. And a word that's almost exactly the same as it, and it's probably more approachable for us in 21st century America, is gentleness. That we are gentle people. That our humility makes us gentle. In order to be a meek person, you must be humble. You see, a meek person is both gentle and quiet in spirit and activity in the way they use their words and their strength. A meek person is internally very strong and they're secure and thus his or her actions can be bold and be full of strength. But someone who has great power can keep their power under control. The opposite of somebody who's humble, though, is somebody who's proud. The opposite of somebody who is meek is full of wrath and a wrathful person at the very core of who they are is proud and they in, end up engaging and reacting to life and reacting in relationships in errat- erratic and hyperbolic sort of ways. Lashing out. Often what this is is people they feel threatened Their pride, something, their pride, and they feel like they're going to be exposed, and so they must engage in protectionism. And in order to protect themselves, they lash out against the people around them. But a humble and meek man or woman walks with incredible confidence and amazing strength, not because they think that they are so great. You see, what leads to meekness, what leads to a humble heart, is to come face to face with a holy God and to realize I have no superiority of my own. I am this big. But then to realize that the God of heaven and earth, the God who makes me, the God who with a word can make light come into being, with a word can make the greatest thunderstorms on earth cease, that God, he's the one who feels me and empowers me. That makes you a very secure person. No longer do you need the approval of other people. So you're not running around life trying to protect your pride and protect yourself, but you can extend yourself to other people. And when you interact with people, even if they try to hurt you in some way relationally, you can react and interact with gentleness, humility that bounds and leads to meekness. Third, we see that patience then abounds to bearing with and forgiving one another. Quickly, let's understand patience real quick. The the Greek word that's underneath patience is a word, the Greek word macrothumia. Macro means long or lengthy, and thumia means blaze. So literally, what does it mean? To have a long fuse. To not be short fused, in other words, is what it is to be patient. To have a long fuse before you get uh, uh, irritated or annoyed with somebody or get angry and frustrated. Patience is a virtue, and again, it is a strength. The strength to undergo or <laughs> undergo the immaturity and the annoyance of other people without getting flustered by it. Patience. And patience plays itself out in two ways, we see, as it's given in the text. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Here's what understanding bearing with one another means. Literally, it's a great, because we use this word all the time. It means literally to put up with one another. To put up with one another. Bearing with one another means that you put up with the immaturity of another person. You put up with another person's weaknesses and their personality defi- Deficiencies. You're patient with this person. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 and 15, Paul says this. We urge you, brothers, talking about the interaction between, between the brothers and sisters in Christ, admonish the idle. So these are weak people. These are immature people. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak and be patient with them all. And this is the problem so many of us dealing with our spouse or people in the church or our own children. is how we, Our expectations of them, frankly, are maybe too high. Or we become so impatient with their growth and their sanctification problem. So we live in a community. A community where the church is to be people from different backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities and different ages and generations. And that means means you don't just get to hang out with people who are just like you. And therefore who have the same deficiencies and weaknesses as you. You get to hang out with people who have different deficiencies and different weaknesses and different patterns of speech and the way they interact with one another. And, and, and often, these people aren't necessarily, in, in. when you're just kind of, when you're needing to bear with one another, this isn't necessarily sinning against you. This is just annoying you. This is, my dad eats peanuts with his mouth open. It drives me insane every time he does it. That smack, 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 you ever sat across the table from somebody who is opening their mouth while they eat, you want to strangle them. Bearing with one another. Now, very practically, I got three things, just kind of three points of wisdom to, to, to give you in, in, as we bear with one another. To think about and to process in wanting to be better at this. First is this, and this comes from a pastor named Darren Patrick, So I first heard it from. Him. I think it's a great line. It's, first is this, we need to be willing to believe the best about people and weigh through the worst of people. We need to be willing to believe the best about people and weigh through the worst in people. 1 Corinthians 13, I read it earlier, verses 5-7. through seven, The back part of it says this, Love is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. And here we go. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. It believes all things and hopes all things. How, many, how much of our irritation would be resolved if we would simply look at a brother and sister in Christ and say, They are indwelt by the Spirit of the Holy God. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm not going to assume that that activity was meant to offend me. I'm not going to assume that that activity was sinful. It may be an aspect of their deficiency in their personality, and I may engage with that or I may not engage with that, but I'm going to bear with them and be patient with them. Second, you have to recognize, and kind of some wisdom in dealing with and helping us bear with one another, we have to recognize and deal with our own hypersensitivity. If you're going to bear up with people, you have to just kind of go, okay, I shouldn't be so sensitive about people opening their mouths while they eat. It's barbaric, yes. But we're gonna be we I don't need to be offended by it. In other in other, areas, in other words, you're just not simply gonna be so oversensitive, you're not gonna be so easily annoyed, you're gonna you're gonna brush it off, you're gonna have spiritual thick skin. <laughs> what pushes your buttons? What annoys you? NASCAR fans, maybe? The way other people raise their kids? Is it how attractive that person is? And it just really annoys you how pretty they are. They're just so perfect. Here's a good way to tell whether you're really annoyed with somebody. Who have you unfollowed on Facebook? Yeah. And maybe someone from a different political party than you. A different culture from you. Yeah. We often are so easy to get offended and it is our glory, Christians, to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Ken Sandy, who wrote what is pretty much the magnum opus on peacemaking in the church, in his book, Peacemaker, said this, um, overlooking an offense, I think it's going to be up on the screen, overlooking an offense is appropriate under two conditions. First, the offense should not have created a wall between you and the other person, or cause you to feel differently towards him or her for more than a short period of time. In other words, if this offense, this annoyance in your life, or perhaps even sin, if, if, you can find, if you find that you're able to get over that offense and it's not causing a permanent rift in your relationship, then that is something in which you should be able to brush aside. The second is this: the offense should be causing serious harm, or should not excuse me, should not be causing serious harm to God's reputation, to others or to the offender. These things, that we meet those categories and we should be able to brush off an offense and overlook these things. My generation and the generation younger than me in particular, we take up an offense about everything. Everything. And if we are not offended about something, we'll take up somebody else's offense on their behalf. Hang out on Facebook for two days and you'll find this to be true. We are offended. We are looking for ways to be offended. Always, always, always. I don't understand why. So much so we we have so have tried to abolish anything that might be even remotely offensive in our in our culture. I heard the other day that actually yesterday I was, I was sitting with some people at the West Georgia basketball game, and I was told that in Wisconsin at high school basketball games you can no longer chant anything negative about the other team. So if you airball, the other the crowds can't say airball, airball, because this is offensive, and it might hurt other people's feelings. I think, I think we could overlook these things maybe. Third little bit of, of wisdom is this. See that God has given you discernment, has given you the vision of seeing someone's flaws and deficiencies, not so you can drive them away, but so that you can extend them grace. <laughs> I, I love it when people say, I, I have just been given the gift of really being able to under, seeing people's, seeing who they really are. And really critically evaluating someone's life. I love it when people tell me that. Because I look at them and I say, yeah, we all have, think we have that gift. It's called judgmentalism. <laughs> but God has given you the ability to see other people's sins and weaknesses. Not so you can crush them. Not so you can run away from them as fast as you possibly can. Boundaries are of value. Don't, don't mishear me. But so you can extend them grace in, in Philippians 1 Paul prays that we would have discernment in our relationships and love in our relationships. We cannot simply be a people who simply go run around discerning everyone's problems and then having nothing to do with them. We have been put in a body together to sanctify one another. Why has God given you a spouse? There was a book, I loved it, a, couple of years, a number of years back, I remember when I was a kid, my parents were part of a, a marriage class, and they were going through a book, that was called, God, you, Marriage is not for your happiness, it's for your holiness. I think it's for your happiness as well, but it is to make for your ultimate happiness, because the more holy you become, the more happy you become. And that's what we all, we all to see each other in covenant together as God's people, here to help one another become holy, not simply pointing out one another's flaws and then having nothing to do with one another. So believe the best, way through the worst. So that's the bearing with one another. What about the forgiving part? As the outflow of patient, of a patient heart. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is first and foremost, the very core of what it is, is canceling a debt or absor- absorbing a debt. So imagine you're, you're, you're with a friend or, and they get angry at you. You're in a, let's say you're debating the Republican uh, debates from this past week. And you got really, really angry. And they got really, really angry. And they threw their grape juice on you. All of your white shirts. Somebody's going to have to pay for the dry cleaning. Forgiveness is saying, I will take that debt. And I'll, the one who's been offended will say, I will, I will take that and I will absorb that offense. And I will make the payment for it. I'll pay for the dry cleaning. I won't make you pay for it. For this is being willing to carry the pain that someone has inflicted upon you and give it up to the Lord. Instead of inflicting that pain back upon the person who's offended you. This is what a forgiveness is. Is and what does forgiveness look like practically in the life of a believer? This means you won't use it, their offenses, their sins against you, against them. You won't talk about their sins to, against that have been done against you to other people. You won't gossip about what they have been done to you behind closed doors. You will not seek to dwell on their sins, mulling over it over and over and over again. Thomas Watson, is an old Puritan, said this: "When we have, when have we forgiven?" He asks. When have we forgiven others? He says this, When we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish wish well to them, we grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. Forgiveness for the Christian is to go to those lengths. If you're going to be in the process of forgiveness... This is the one little bit of wisdom in regards under undergirding our need to pursue forgiveness. If you're gonna if you're gonna pursue forgiveness in your life, and some of you desperately need to do this, see if you if you haven't forgiven, it, it is like swallowing a poison pill that's destroying your life from the inside out. It's like drinking the water in Michigan, Flint, Michigan, right now. It poisons your soul. Some of you need to still forgive your parents or a brother or sister or a past boyfriend or girlfriend, a boss that was nasty to you. But if you're going to be in the process of forgiving, you have to refuse to elevate someone else's sins and sinfulness above your own. We have a little internal PR person who spins the situation, every situation in which we've been offended and exaggerates the sin of another person in comparison to our own. They have a great spin to this. We often take one negative act by by a person and we define them entirely by that one act. We show that we are not in touch with our own depravity when we engage with people in this way. G.K. Chesterton said this, no man is really any good until he knows how bad he really is. He must realize... How much right he really has to be, he has no right to be snobby, to be sneering, this talking about others as if they were apes in a forest 10,000 miles away. He must squeeze out of his soul the last drop of desire to judge others instead of dealing with his own sin. When someone wrongs me, we have to commit to not, this is how we so often do it. When we see the weakest part of someone's life and the comparison we give to their life to ours, it's not the weakest part of our life. It's often to the strongest part of our lives. So this isn't the case often here, if, if you're somebody who's very, very disciplined, so you're great with money. You know, I mean, you've got, it, you've got the Excel spreadsheet. I mean, it's got like, I mean, multiple pages over and over and over and over again. You've got it down to the very cent. I mean, you're a Dave, you've got a podcast. Of Dave Ramsey, Your buds, Your are bros. You're super disciplined. And you hang around somebody who's not quite so disciplined. And you're always going, man, what? Look at these, look at these. I can't think these are finances. They're such awful stewards. That's the area where we find to compare ourselves. Or maybe the person, the person who's very passionate, who exhibits great fervor for the Lord and looks at someone who's maybe they're from the Midwest. And they just don't exhibit. They have that kind of Scandinavian sobriety to their personality. Look at them. They have no affection for Jesus. This is how often we think about people we pit our. <laughs> our strengths against their weaknesses. Well, that's not a very fair fight, is it? Miroslav Wolf, I'll probably bring this quote out every time I talk about forgiveness from here on out. But he says this, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans. And I exclude myself from the community of sinners. I exclude the enemy from the community of humans. This is how we end up slaughtering one another. It begins here. A lack of forgiveness which in, so we have bitterness that invades our lives and it leads to death. Last week we talked about malice and slander and obscene talk. And there is not a time where you will be more tempted to engage in malice and slander and obscene talk than when somebody has offended you. You've got to take off the malice and the slander, but the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you've put on forgiveness and patience with one another. This is a lot, isn't it? There's so much wisdom in this passage. Way to, ways to live your life. So much beauty in this character. Where do you think Paul gets this list of character qualities? I mean, Paul has this about every book he writes. He'll have this, like, he'll just go on this montage of just character qualities. Where does he get this? He's not quoting from any passage in the Old Testament. You you might be able to find some of these character qualities mentioned someplace here and there at a smattering of places in the Old Testament, but you don't find these lists anywhere. It's not quoting. Where is he finding this? Jesus. He's going back and saying, Christian, you are hidden in Christ. Now live like Christ. Your new self is Christ Jesus. And so the comparison and the character qualities that we're display are the character qualities of Jesus. That means, Christian, you are to put on Christ and you are to live like Christ. The invisible Christ now is to be made visible by us as believers in the way we live. We're to be ambassadors to the world the way we live and love one another. Now practically, if we come to the, the last part this morning. How do we live this out? Very practically, how do we put on love? That's so ethereal, right? Put on love. How do we grow in our love for others and our display of compassion and kindness and forgiveness? Well, the first two are, are brief and some more proverbial and, and, and wisdom-oriented. The first is this. You've got to get into authentic and vulnerable community. Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. So you'll never realize how, how unkind you are and how, how, how much you lack gentleness and how, how much you're so easily annoyed with other people until you actually live around other people. Life is great, except for all these people we have to hang out with, right? Right? Yeah, so you got to get in the community because we sharpen one another. You actually have to engage with your problems. You won't see your failures until you're living in community. Many, many people often take the view of community as well, that they are more like an axe and everybody else is the tree. <laughs> what happens in that case? You get dull spiritually and everybody else gets hurt. What Paul is saying here is live brother to brother. Iron sharpens iron for one another. And what happens in this scenario, what happens here is when brothers are sharpening brothers, we see authenticity and vulnerability. There, there has been much made in my generation of being an authentic church, which means you're willing to share everybody your dirty little secrets. But actually, if all we are is authentic and we are not vulnerable, that does no good. In fact, it can do serious damage. Because all we end up doing in authenticity is sharing our flaws And we never extend the grace of becoming more mature. The theme of the church should be this. You're accepted as you are, but we will not accept you to stay as you are. And part of engaging, see, this means this. In authenticity, you reveal who you are. But in vulnerability, you give the people around you the freedom to speak into who you are. Do you have people in your life like that? Where you can grow? in compassion grow in kindness this mutual authenticity and mutual transparency occurs in the fellowship of believers and then we begin to sharpen one another you will not grow in compassion until you have that you won't grow in compassion and love and forgiveness if you isolate yourself get in that kind of relationship the second proverbial point here is this make choices May, I talked about this last week. This is a decision of the will. You're going to make a choice to get into community. Sorry, I don't know what's going on with my mic this morning. Um, to get, but also make choices, make resolutions and decisions that you are going to choose to be compassionate. That I will begin to have this paradigm, that I won't look for people's flaws for the sake of running away from them, for the sake of critiquing them and making myself feel better, but so that I can be the means of God's grace in their life. You, forget to, you, for, you commit and resolve to forgive people quickly, to go back and forgive that parent or that spouse or that boss, that member of the church who one time used their mouth a little too flippantly and offended you. Now, here's the thing. This is a choice, and I, I, I said choices. We need to make choices because forgiveness is a process. You make a one-time choice and you communicate that forgiveness, but forgiveness is a daily process. Being compassionate is a daily process. Growing in kindness is a daily process. Because what happens is you're going to grow, you're going to begin to say, I'm going to be compassionate to those around me, I'm going to look for their needs, and you're going to find needs very, very, very easily, and you're going to begin to engage with them, and a month down the road, you're going to be like, this is more than I can handle. Because there's more need out there than any of us can handle. One person's need is more than any one of us can handle. And so you need to make a decision, choice every day. I will not run away from community. I will not run away from these relationships. I will engage time after time. I will put these things on. Now, if we accept this calling to live in community and to make choices to live this way and to make very clear, willful decisions as to how we're going to do that, a couple of things are going to happen. First is this, is we will be overwhelmed by it and perhaps even crushed by it. We will say there's no way we can do these things. I can't be humble all the time. I can't be kind all the time. Have you, have you known how deeply some people hurt me? Forgiveness is an impossibility right now. God, I can't do this. That's a great place to be. Because what happens then after that, Lord willing, is this. Is when you realize you can't do it, It then leads you to fall on your knees before the Lord and say, I need a Savior myself. And the only way, and the best way to become a person of grace is to understand the grace that has been given to you. This is the power that enables us. And this is your third point in how we put love on. And that's this, to live into the grace of your new identities. Just you see how Paul began? Verse 12, put on them as God's chosen ones, as holy, as beloved, and later on forgive each other as you have been forgiven the way in which we're empowered to love and forgive and show compassion is to receive love and forgiveness and compassion. We know this from orphan children. The accounts of people who've been to orphanages in places like Ukraine and Russia where the children are never touched. They're never loved. You don't hear them crying there. It's a deafening Silence. And what has been shown is that if that child is never picked up, never held, never cooed at, never loved on, is they'll never be able to express love. They don't learn how from the very first, day, first few days of their life. It is impossible for us to express love to other people unless we have first been expressed love to. Unfortunately, we have infinite love that's been given to us, right? Chosen ones. Let's just look through some of these real quick. He calls us Chosen ones. We must never think of the doctrine of election as a dispassionate choice on God's part. Whatever you may believe about it, it was done with great feeling and with joy by God. It says in Ephesians, in love he predestined you. He set his heart of love on us, it says in Deuteronomy 10. This is what he does. He calls us out of his love and draws us to himself. So, we are chosen ones. You want to have compassion like Jesus has compassion? Then you need to see how Jesus set his eyes on you as his sheep that has run away. And like a sheep, like sheep without a shepherd, he says that Jesus had compassion on the people of Jerusalem. He says, Compassion for you, you must understand that. Holy, he calls us holy. You want to be humble and meek, you want to be strong. And you need to hear the declaration from God that you are indeed holy in his sight. That you have been set apart. That's what it means to be holy. To be called special in his his eyes. Holy ones. You don't need the praise of men. The fullness of your confidence and your strength in this world is from his voice. And have you ever ever received a reward or some recognition? Some recognition that goes way beyond what you've actually done? God calls you holy. Holy. And when you experience somebody giving you a war that you know goes way beyond what you deserve, it humbles you. It's humbling. They already calls us beloved. You want to be loved, then you must hear the voice of God who says, You are my beloved one. This is romantic language. You need to know the love of God the Father. General you know babies they found cry with accents. There's a professor in Germany. They studied uh, babies from Germany and France a number of other countries in Europe. And then they they recorded those babies when they first started to cry outside the womb. And they recorded the, the, the intonations and the paths of those babies. And it found that each of them, there was a particular accent to their crying. The French baby cried in French. The German baby cried with a German accent. Now, why is that? Here's what the researcher said. The baby eavesdrops on its mother for nine months... It puts its ear to the rail of her bones and listens to the train of her sorrow and gladness coming for miles. The child emerges from its mother's insides with her voice ringing in its ears, her music echoing in its bones. As a result, the baby's first instinct is to sing the mother's song. Here's the issue, here's the point. Have you heard the father's song? He sings over you, my beloved. And to the degree that you hear that, you will turn, you'll love other people. Finally, forgiven. The only way you're going to bear with one another and forgive one another is to see how much you've been forgiven. So a story from a commentator, a guy named Dave Redding who knew a, um, a warden of a, princ- of a prison. And this warden tells a story. This is, 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 this is a commentator from way back, from a previous gen- uh, century. It tells the story of a young man who had been in, in jail, and he was on a train ride sitting next to a, a companion. And he, and, and he was telling other man in the seat that, Uh, He looked very despondent. And the other man asked him if he was okay. And the young man said, yes, I just got out of jail. Just been released. I've been in jail for many, many years. And I'm going home. And I've had hardly any correspondence with my family over the last many years while I've been in jail. And I'm very fearful they won't accept me back because I've brought great shame, great consequences on my family. They lost much of their wealth. They've been shamed in our community. And he said, so I wrote to them a couple weeks back and told them I was going to be getting out of jail and I said, I'm gonna, my train is going to be passing our family farm. And there's an apple tree right next to the tracks. And so if you're going to welcome me back, if you'll, if you'll forgive me, then put one white strip of linen and tie it to that apple tree. So as they're coming up to his hometown, about to pass his farm, he tells a friend who's with him, he says, I, I, I can't look. The pressure's too great. And so his friend looks out the window as they round a bend, and the tree comes in view. And the friend says puts his hand on his knee and says, it's going to be okay. The whole tree is covered in white flags. You are forgiven. Your sins have been washed away. This is how Jesus forgives you, like a father who welcomes his son back fully, freely, gladly, and abundantly. To the degree that you understand that, you will turn and you'll bear with one another and you'll forgive one another. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a community. Not of just a bunch of like minded people who look alike and dress alike and smell alike and come from the same places. But Lord, that we would smell different. That we would look different. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of God applied to us, that we would love each other in our differences in spite of our differences sometimes, and often in the beauty of what you're creating in this masterpiece called the church because of our differences. Gracious God, we thank you that you're a redeeming God. We thank you that you're a God who clothes us with your righteousness first and foremost so that we're perfect and lovely before you even though we don't deserve that. And we pray that we would strive today and tomorrow and the next day to live out the love of Jesus Christ to those around us. And may the world know and give glory and honor to you. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen.